Good morning. Today we will be in our second week of Hebrews. If you open up your copy of God's Word, we will be in Hebrews. It follows right after a little bitty short book that's only one page long called Philemon. And that's where you will find your place in the New Testament. Hebrews is right before probably the most practical book in the entire Bible, James. So if you will, open up to Hebrews. Today we are continuing in our series looking at Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And today we're looking specifically at how Jesus is greater than angels. And this is chapter 1, verses 4 through chapter 2, verse 4. That's where we'll find ourselves today. You know, we have these imagined perspectives of what angels look like, don't we? We have these ideas of what we think because we watch a lot of TV and we watch movies and we get these ideas of what angels look like. Some consider angels looking like Roma Downey, off touched by an angel. You know, it looks like some, some lady who's real gentle and caring and loving. And then you've got the other lady that's an angel as well. Forgive me that I can't recall her name. But, but it is true that angels do appear in various forms and in different ways so they can communicate uh, God's message to various people. But really and truly, they don't look like Roma Downey. Uh, we also consider angels looking like little fat baby angels, don't we? Like, like, they're like they're just sitting up on some cloud, like that cloud could hold that little fat baby or something. You know, but anyway, that's what we think sometimes. And we think they've got some two little wings, and they got a little arrow, and they're going to shoot you. That's Cupid. That's not an angel in heaven, okay? That's Greek mythology. So that's, that's not right either. Some people, uh, some angels are viewed in a humanly form, such as some armed militant angel. You know, we get pictures of Michael and Gabriel, and we see them, their wings all spread out, and they've got this gargantuan sword looking like, looking like something out of the military of Roman history. You know, they probably got on a helmet or long flowing blonde hair. It's like Fabio with wings. You know, some people get this idea of that's what an angel looks like. But I want to tell you that <clears throat> angels are scary looking creatures. They are scary looking creatures. And uh, they are intimidating. Uh, the Bible explains what they look like, and they are terrifying. They are terrifying. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, uh, and in the revelation of Jesus Christ, they are described, and they are not what you think. They've got six wings. They're full of eyes. I'm talking about like crazy looking. I searched it up on the internet after I read all through uh, these different scriptures that I that I gave you reference to, I looked them up on the internet, and I thought, man, if that's the way they look, that's pretty creepy. You know, I mean, it looks like, it looks weird. Uh, and uh, the living creatures is what they call them in Ezekiel 1, I believe it is. And, and, and one's got, on one side, it's the face of a man. One side, it's the face of a lion. One side, it's the face of something else. And there's an eagle on the back side of the head. And, and like, they got six wings. And, and then, like, there's, there's these wheels on either side of them. And the wheels are turning. And it says in the Bible that these angels cannot go in, in omnidirectional. They can only go in straight paths. And I mean, it is weird. It's, it's crazy stuff. So you know when people say they saw an angel, there's a reason why they're terrified. There's a reason why they're terrified. And on those wheels, it says there's eyeballs all over those wheels. I'm telling you, it is, it's crazy. We, when we think of angels, most of the time we think of these that are as... As, uh, as we reflect on them in the militant form. You know, that's kind of how we look at them. But today, we're, although angels are a big part of what we're talking about today, we're still talking about Jesus is even greater than all those weird-looking angels. 
Okay? We do know that angels appear in the form, in a human form, many a times because you got to think at one point Jacob even wrestles with an angel, right? And the angel touches his hip and is dislocated. And, and he, I mean, how are you going to wrestle with something that's got six wings and, and got legs like a calf? You know, I mean, that's what the Bible says. That'd be an interesting wrestling match, right? But Jacob wrestles with him. And, and so we've got these different accounts in the Bible. And, but it's, it, like I said, as great and as strange and as terrifying as these angels are, okay? I thought about putting pictures up there, but I thought that's just going to be way too distracting. You're going to be thinking about that the whole service, and you're not really going to think about Jesus. You're going to be thinking about these weird, wacky-looking angels. You can look that up in your spare time. Don't pull out your phones and look right now. I know you want to, but don't do it. But we're looking at Jesus is greater than the angels in Hebrews 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, verse 4. And we're going to look at these three primary questions. Who is Jesus? Who are the angels? And who are we? That's what we're going to look at today. Who is Jesus? Who are the angels? And who are we? So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 because that's the first mention of angels here in Hebrews chapter 1. Most start at verse 5, but I'm going to start at verse 4 because he's been given a name greater than the angels. Hebrews 1, verse 4. I've had the hardest time every time I've read this passage of Scripture finding the 4 in my Bible. Here it is. All right. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, what else did he say? I will, be a, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn, that's a key word there again. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And, verse 10, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So today... As we look at this passage of Scripture, the first thing we're going to look at is who is Jesus? Now, as we walk through this, I'm on, this is going to be back and forth with the various verses in this, in this context that we have read today. 
We'll be back and forth in different verses all throughout four, chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 2, verse 4. And there are some big things that we find out about who Jesus is from this text. Who is Jesus? Well, first off, he is God the Son. He is God the Son. You look there in that passage of Scripture in verse 5. The question is by the author, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. He's not said that to a single solitary angel. He's not said that. He said that to Jesus Christ. We know he said that. Uh, he said that when Jesus was baptized there by John the baptizer. He come up out of the water and he said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and landed upon him. And so we have this account of God the Father from heaven speaking this about his son. He says this also at the ascension. He tells um, he, he tells the, the, the men there, no, excuse me, not at the ascension, but when Jesus was transfigured, he tells them, listen to my son. Listen to my son. And we want us to understand what, what this author is wanting us to know, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is son. He is the begotten alone. There is no one else like Jesus Christ. He is the immediate expression of the rights and glory of God, is what Newell says in his commentary. We know that Jesus, he is God, and he is God from the beginning. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, God the Son, was in the beginning with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because the Spirit was hovering above the face of the deep. So he was there present as well. Jesus, God the Son, the begotten of God, has always been. Newell wrote also that when he says he will be a son, he will be to me a son, or of course spoken of Christ as the son of David, as man, as a man. As God, he was eternally in the relationship as son. He's always been God the Son. And we, are, we know him in that way. God the Son, we know God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Scripture goes on to say he is the firstborn. Look there in verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So we have this that he is the firstborn, and this within itself, the firstborn, is an absolute title. It is a name. He is the firstborn. And we also know in Colossians 1.18, Christ is spoken of as the firstborn of the dead. In Colossians 1 first, excuse me, in Colossians 1 verse 15, he is called the firstborn of every creature. And these are titles of position rather, rather than relative order. Christ is the firstborn of every creature. He is the firstborn of them that slept. Others were born before him. Others were raised ahead of him. You know, he even raised Lazarus. But Christ's position is the highest. It is the most excellent. He is the head and none can be higher. What this is saying is that Christ has the preeminence. He has the highest status of anything else. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. And that, that is his position. Oliver Green, 
uh, wrote much of what I just spoke to you in his epistle to the Hebrews. He is the firstborn. He is also God enthroned. Look at verses 8 and 9. It said, the author wrote, But to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This verse, specifically there in, um, in the latter part of verse 8 and then verse 9, this comes from Psalm 45, 7 and 8. Many of these quotes about who Christ is are taken from the Psalms. All seven of them. There's seven different things spoken, taken from seven different places in, uh, in the, the psalm that the psalmist wrote. And the quotation is taken from Psalm 45, 7 and 8, where it writes, where the, where the psalmist wrote, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. He is God enthroned. That's who Jesus is. And we know that that's where Jesus is seated at this very day. Scripture tells us that when he finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down beside the Father. He is God enthroned. In verses 10 through 12, if you look at that with me, he is creator God. This is who Jesus is. He is creator God. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. So this, he is the creator God. He, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. In the Greco-Roman world, they believed the worlds were eternal. That's what they, they thought the worlds were eternal. We have come to know that's not true because we know there's falling stars. We know that there's different stars that have burned out, and, and that's what we see. We consider them worlds. They're just stars. They're far away. They, uh, they have a light that comes from them. Some of that is a reflection of the sun, but at the same time, they have their own eminence and their own glory, if you will, their radiance. But all those things will burn out one day. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that one day all the elements will burn up, and Christ, God, will make a new heaven and a new earth. And so uh, we know this. He is eternal. He is creator God. But the Greco-Roman world believed that the worlds were eternal. But here this author is stating how Christ is eternal eternal. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. There's no changing in his character. There's no changing in who he is. It is the Son who will bring about the changes in the heavens above us and in the universe. Yet he himself, he himself is unchangeable and everlasting. He is the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. That's what Scripture told us in the Old Testament that would be named of Jesus in the New Testament when he would be born, when he would be born incarnate, as it tells us there in the first uh, chapter of John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we also see here, as Oliver Green points out, he says, Here the Father addresses the Son as deity, 
and refers to his throne, his scepter, his kingdom, his character, his exaltation, his creative power, and his immutability. Here is one of the clearest and most concise and understandable teachings in all the Word of God concerning the essential deity of Christ. And this testimony is given given by none other than Jehovah, the sovereign God. Right here, he tells tells us, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He tells us all these things about his righteousness. Then he tells us about how he is the creator God and how he is going to last forever. They will perish, but you will remain there in verse 11. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. He has the authority to do so and the power to do so. I love Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 beautifully goes hand in hand with this passage of Scripture talking about who Christ is there in Colossians 1. And it says like a cloak there in verse 12 of this same chapter. You will fold them up. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not fail. He is creator God. And he is definitely a God to be served. He is a God to be served. Look there in verse 13. To which of the angels has he, being God the Father, ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This is taken from Psalm 110 verse 1. And the psalmist wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And in context, after Jesus has risen from the grave, thus conquering his enemies. That's what he's talking about when he overcame the grave. He says, Sit at my right hand. Jesus said on the cross that his work was finished. His work was finished. So he was going to sit down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And his enemies, Satan, the demons, the world, the culture, was going to be his footstool. Treating one's enemies as a footstool is a metaphor drawn from Old Testament practice of a conquering king placing his foot upon the neck of a vanquished king to emphasize his triumph. And that's exactly the the picture, the imagery that we get when Christ overcomes death, hell, and the grave. He takes his foot and he puts his foot on on the neck of death, hell, and the grave. It says, you have no power over me. And honestly, no more for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ does it have power over us as well. But we can't put our foot on it. Christ has put his foot on it. And we put our faith in the one who has the power to do that. And so we trust him as the one who is to be served, the conquering king. The psalmist depicts the future reign of Christ when he will reign over the Messianic kingdom and all enemies will finally be brought into submission is what Kent Jr., not R. Kent, not R. Kent Hughes, but Kent, I think his name was Homer Kent Jr., wrote in his commentary. And this is an incredibly high view of Jesus Christ. Incredibly high view. Of Jesus Christ. It's a view we should all have of Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As we looked at it just a moment ago. He is God the Son. 
He is the begotten of the Father. He is the firstborn. He is God enthroned. He is creator God, and he is a God to be served. We can see all that from this passage of Scripture there from verse 5 all the way down through verse 14. Verse 5 all the way down through verse 14. So now who are these angels that we talked about? Who are these angels that have been called upon many a times by God the Father, the Son? Who, who, who are they? And where are they? Well, the Bible, let me explain this to you. It's not about angels. The Bible is not about angels. But they are definitely a part of the Bible. So you can't ignore them. You can't ignore the angels, but at the same time, we don't worship angels. There's a bad, bad problem in our world today where people worship angels. That's not something we do. You know, we, we understand there are several different and as I research this, some people say there's a hierarchy of angels as well. And, and uh, Scripture kind of lends to this as well. There's cherubim, there's seraphim. There was another one called, um, o, uh, it was, I, can't, I can't even pronounce it, it was like O-P-H-A-N-I-M, Ophanim. That's, that's supposed to be like the highest form of angels. Uh, and the cherub is like the lowest. The seraphim is the next to highest. Anyway, but they've all got their different purposes and practices and things that they do. But we also know that Lucifer was an angel of God who was cast out of heaven. He was an angel, and he was cast out. And when he was cast out, several angels followed after. And, and uh, excuse me, several angels followed after and fallen to the side of Lucifer in his prideful attempt to declare his deserving of worship. And Lucifer is known as Satan, the great accuser. We know many, uh, Lucifer by many names. Uh, and in Revelation and other major prophets of the Old Testament, we know that a large number of angels fell with Lucifer. Revelation gives us a number of one-third of the heavenly angels fell with him when he chose to sin against God in his pride. Uh, one thing that I always like to point out to folks is that the first sin was pride. The first sin ever was pride. That was Satan's sin. Before mankind sinned, Satan sinned. And Satan had, a, had the sin of pride, thinking that he was great and deserving of the worship that only God deserves. So there are some certain things we, conclude, we can conclude about angels from throughout the Scriptures. Okay, And we get that from this passage of Scripture particularly. I'm not going to jump back and forth all throughout the Bible. So if we look here in verses 5 and 6, look there in verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, to which of the angels did he, being God, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. None. He's not said that to any angel. But this is what we could take from this. If Jesus is the son of God, angels are worshipers of Jesus. Look there at what it says there in verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. This is considered by many commentators as a reference to when Christ returns for his second advent since the word again is used. You see that. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world. You know, he brought the firstborn in at the first advent. He'll bring the firstborn again at the second advent. 
And so this is kind of an understanding of when Christ returns and they will all worship him. But regardless, in either time setting, we know angels are worshipers and messengers of God. It's what they are. They are worshipers. The scripture tells us that when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the angels are in the presence of God and they're celebrating in the presence of the angels. And they are around the throne of God. We know that. And when we think about the worship that angels have given to Jesus Christ, the worship that angels have given to God throughout time, we can see that in the scriptures. We see they worshiped him in heaven when he came into this earthly sphere and took a mortal body. They worshiped him when his birth was announced to the shepherds on that long ago night in Judea. They worshiped him in the wilderness of temptation and ministered to him immediately after he, being Christ, had commanded Satan to depart from him. They worshiped him in Gethsemane and strengthened him when he fell prostrate in agonizing prayer, his perspiration stained with his divine blood. The angels are worshipers and ministers to Christ. It's who they are. They are the, 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 the worshipers that have been, are, and will always be of God. That's who they are. Look there in verse 7. Of the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? So if Jesus is God enthroned, if Jesus is God enthroned, you also see that in verse 8, but to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels minister around his throne, where it says God makes his angels spirits and ministers. This is taken from Psalm 104, verses 3 and 4, referencing God's mighty power. Psalm 104, 3 and 4. It says, He lays the beams of the upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels' spirits his ministers of flame, of fire. You know, angels minister in a variety of ways. They have appeared to men delivering messages, worked in supernatural ways to deliver and protect God's people, and even wrestled to bring messages that God's people needed to know. The angels are ministering servants of God. That's who they are. We know they brought messages uh, they, they, they brought the messages to, to Mary, to Joseph. They brought messages all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. You see those accounts of angels being used as ministers. And they ministered to Christ in, in the garden. They, they ministered in, in a variety of ways. Look there also in verse 7. Excuse me, not verse 7. Um, in verse 10, it says... And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. If Jesus is the creator, the angels are part of his creation. The angels are part of his creation. The only non-created being in the universe is God. The only, the only non- or uncreated being in the universe is God. Everything else is a creation of God. So the angels are a creation of God. Everything else is a creation of God, for God, by God, through God. Everything else is a creation. So the angels are 
a creation. They are a creature. In verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So they can bring a gospel message. If Jesus is seated on the throne, the angels are his servants. They are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. They bring a message of good news. You think about the angels on the hillside when they appear to the shepherds. They tell them, good news that we bring to you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That all came from an angel. They had the good news. They brought the message of hope. They are ministers sent forth by God so that people may inherit salvation. And the only way to inherit salvation is through Jesus Christ. We know that from John 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall come to the Father except through me. So to inherit salvation, you've got to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So who are angels? Angels are worshipers. Angels are ministers. Angels are creations or creatures, and they are servants. That's who angels are. And then who are we? In verses 1 through 4, we find out who we are. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Remember the angels? They have brought it. They have brought it in various ways. The gospel. We've heard these things. We've heard these things about who Christ is. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So the first thing I want to point out in this passage of Scripture, in chapter 2, verse 1, is the word, therefore. Whenever you find that word, you need to look to see what it is there for. What it is tied to. What is it tied to? Therefore is a hinge upon which we turn. So we see all these statements about who Christ is. We see all these statements about who the angels are. And what the purpose of all that is, is to bring about this opportunity of salvation for anyone and everyone. Jesus came to bring salvation. Angels came with a message of salvation that it's only through Jesus. They brought these things. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. What is this we're drifting away from? It is this great salvation that's listed down there in verse 3. So who are we? We are recipients of a great salvation. We are recipients of a great salvation. Well, how did we receive it? Well, we heard about this great salvation through those who've gone before us. If you were in Sunday school this morning and you were listening to the lesson and paying attention to the lesson, the first part was entitled Sanctify. The second part was entitled Unite. And it was talking about Jesus Christ praying for future believers. He says, I pray for those that will hear through their word. 
We are those believers today, and God is still praying for those future believers. Jesus is praying for those that will hear by our testimony and by our knowing and having such a great salvation. We have a great salvation. We have a costly salvation. It cost Christ his life. On this earth, he was beaten and spat upon and mocked and ignored, unjustly tried. He went through all these things. It's a great salvation that we have. We are recipients of a great salvation. And we have heard such a great salvation. And when you hear this, you got to do something with it. You as an individual, me as an individual, when we hear of this great salvation, we're either going to receive it or reject it. Every time we hear the gospel, we're either receiving it, growing in it, or rejecting it and forsaking it. One or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground with this great salvation. The, the author writes that we have heard about this great salvation in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. We hear there in verse 3, we heard it in, uh, from eyewitness individuals. Look there in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? See, the author here was not a first, was not a, uh, did not hear Christ himself speak. He was a second generation hearer of the word of God. He didn't hear Christ speak himself. And you know, Paul, some people argue, we talked about this last week, some people argue that Paul wrote this epistle to the Hebrews, but Paul would not have said this this way. He always, he said he was born out of, out of at an un, un, untimely, he was born I can't, I can't phrase it correctly. But anyway, he was not born at the right time. I'm just going to say it that way, okay? For to be able to see Christ manifest physically on this earth. He, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, okay? But yet here, this guy, this, this author says, uh, this, these things that were spoken here was confirmed to us by those who heard him, meaning a first, first account, first person account. And he, they didn't get to hear them. So... Uh, we heard it from eyewitness of individuals. And then we have God as a witness with signs and wonders. Look there in verse 4. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's saying that God is also giving us witness through these signs and wonders. That's what he's done. So that we can be recipients of a great salvation. So the first thing of who we are is we are recipients of a great salvation. Number two, we are those who must treat our salvation with care. We are those who must treat our salvation with care. Look back there in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. To take heed is in reference to all we have just received. Jesus is greater than angels, so we need to pay close attention to this. Throughout much of the culture, angels were worshipped. Even today, angels are worshipped. We need to take great heed. Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels have their purpose. The angels have their place. They have their value. But yet, they are not greater than Jesus. They are not. 
So we don't worship them. We worship Jesus. Every account in the Bible where an angel appeared to someone and, and people were scared and sometimes they would bow down and begin to worship and the angel would always say, no, 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 you stand up. In the Old Testament, you know, we have a pre-incarnate Christ where anytime you see a capital A, the angel of the Lord, that's, a, that's an account of the pre-incarnate Christ appearing to them. He never refuses the worship. But if you see an angel of the Lord, but if it's the angel of the Lord, that's different. That's a pre-incarnate Christ. But all these angels, they, they, don't, they are not to be worshipped. They are never to be worshipped. So we know we should worship Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is greater than the angels, so we need to pay close attention to this. Notice what it says. It says if we don't pay close attention to it, we're going to drift away. And this is a nautical word. And any of you who have experienced any time on a boat on the lake or at sea can understand what drifting away means. You can know what that means. I think about my Uncle John. Many years ago, my Uncle John was on a boat out at sea, and the engine went out. And he was adrift. He was adrift at sea for a while. They were able to find him. He wasn't out too awfully long. I can't remember the duration of his stay out on the ocean, but I'm sure it was quite scary. But he was drifting away. He was drifting away. So we can understand what that means. And the meaning of this drift away in this particular context and its personal subject, we, indicate not that something might drift away from us, but that we might drift away from something and that something being Christ. We need to be anchored to Christ lest we drift away. We have got to be centered, uh, anchored, and close to taking more earnest heed to the things we have heard or else we will drift away. So to not drift away, we need to mature in our salvation. This great salvation that we have, we have got to mature in it. So we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Now I think about this this scripture, where that is taken from, it's like this. Every single one of us, every single one of us have muscles in our body. Right? Every single one of us do. But you know what? Some of us have bigger muscles than others. Why is that? Because we go work them out. We go work them out. And for each and every one of us who have proclaimed that Christ is who he says he is, he is Lord, and, and that we believe that Christ raised his son from the dead, we're saved. So we have this great salvation within us. But some of you have a weak salvation. It's not lacking in power to save, but it might be lacking in power to keep you from the temptations of the evil one, the fiery darts that will come against you. You've got a weak salvation. Because the salvation that you have, you're not working out. You've got to work it out. It's, it's like it to a physical workout at a gym. You have muscles, you have salvation, okay? The strength of those, mus uh, those muscles and your salvation is based on how you discipline your body physically and how you discipline your heart and mind spiritually. That's how you're going to find out if you're strong. When the devil comes against you, with every lie and accusation, if you're weak in the faith, you're going to believe it. And you're going to get weary. And you're going to get wore down. And all your burdens and all the trials and all the temptations are overcome you. And then you're going to be all poor pitiful me. Where is Jesus in all this? 
Well, Jesus is where he's always been. But you have drifted away. You've not anchored yourself to the word of God. So when those trials and temptations come, God, you're not good. God is good. You're just weak. I'm just weak. If I'm not spending time in that word, Shelby asked this morning in Sunday school, who have y'all read your Bibles this week and prayed every day? You know, because she's filling out that little form, you know. And I was like, whoa, man, that's, that's a challenging question. But yes, I have. I mean, I have. And, you know, as a pastor, I better have. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But how many of us, in all honesty, could answer that and say, yes, I have. And you wonder why we're weak. We wonder why our churches are weaker and smaller and not growing. It's because we've drifted away. We're not anchored. We're not maturing in our salvation. So how else do we mature? We have a consistent life of prayer. On Wednesday nights, you get a big long list. I'm telling you, if you pray through that whole list, you're probably going to pray for some good time. But I'm going to tell you this, you shouldn't just be praying for those things. You need to be praying, and, and I need to be praying. This isn't a sermon just to you. This is a sermon to me, too, for sure. we got to be praying for the salvation of anybody and everybody that we talk to. we got to be praying for that coworker. we got to be praying for that family member. we got to be praying for that child. we got to be praying for that mom, that dad, that grandparent, that aunt, that uncle. we got to be praying for them. We've got to be praying for We've got to have a consistent life of prayer. We want, a, we want a strong, thriving children's ministry. We need to be praying for our children's ministry. We need to be praying for Misty. We need to be praying for our, our Sunday school teachers. We need to be praying for our Wednesday night teachers. We need to be praying for our children. We need to be praying for their parents. You want a strong children's ministry? Start praying. You want a strong youth ministry? Start praying for our youth. Start praying for our youth teachers. Start praying for the youth's parents. Start praying for salvation to come to them. Start praying for their, to them mature in their faith. You want a strong youth program? That's what you got to start doing. You want a strong church? adult ministry start praying for the adults in the church we want to mature in our faith mature in your faith mature in your faith it starts at home it starts in your heart we talked about this morning about uniting and jesus talked about the glory that he puts in us that's a little bit of a conversation about the holy spirit being put into us and, and because we're all together, when we all get stronger in Christ, the church gets stronger. The church locally, the church universally, it gets stronger if we will devote ourselves to a life of prayer. If we, we want to mature in our salvation, we need to have a consistent life of Bible intake. We need to be taken in the Bible. Listen, there's no bad way to take in the Bible. There's no bad way. Listen, I, I listen to podcasts all the time. I listen to, uh, I, I like to listen to different people talk about it. Uh, I was talking to Matt Thursday night after we got through a basketball. Sorry, I kept him a little late, Alicia. I apologize for that. But uh, I was talking to Matt about this uh, podcast about Judges chapter 15 and 16 because it's coming up on our Wednesday nights with our youth. And, and uh, I, man, they, they pouring out some great stuff. And I was like, man, that's powerful stuff. And it really opened my eyes to some things that I thought, man, I could bring that out. That's some, that's some good thoughts. You know, things that I might not have really thought of. Why is that? Because I need to be having that Bible intake. As your pastor, I'm preaching and teaching all the time. Who's teaching into me? These podcasts are, you know? 
That's who I'm listening to. And I'm, I've got to make sure that I'm listening to uh, good people that are teaching this stuff. But we all need to have good Bible intake. Many of you, you got a phone. You got a phone. You can open that phone up. There's me and Julie. And you, you got the Holy Bible right there. You can open that up in the U version. Whatever. Hey, my daughter's texting me. Um, you, can, you can open it up and you can go to whatever Bible translation you want. I mean, you could select all kinds of different Bible translations, and you could be reading the Bible. You could sit down at the kitchen table, and well, I don't know why that's not wanting to work. But anyway, you could do all those different things, and you could be growing in your Bible intake. There's so many different Bible devotions on that app. Uh, matter of fact, I've got the Hope Missions uh, gospel track. You know, I thought I put that on this morning. My armbands that I trained y'all in the gospel bands. Uh, you could download that app. It's free. And you could download it. And you can read the Bible through that app. There's all different ways. You can have Bible intake all different kinds of ways. But the thing is, do you want it? Do you want to mature? Or do you want to be, be just, I'm satisfied with a little college below. You know, <laughs> you know, you think about it. So I'm not satisfied. We, we, we got to want to grow. We got to want to mature. And then we have to have a consistent life of corporate worship. We need to not, and we're going to get to this later in Hebrews because this is a Hebrew verse that, that the author wrote in there. Do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to have a consistent life of consistent corporate worship. We need to be engaged in that. And I think it's important to hear the Word of God taught, to hear other people talk in Sunday school. If you sit in a class where nobody's talking, move to a class where somebody talks. You, you, you need to have people talking and bouncing ideas off one another. Now listen, some of it might be wrong, but don't point it out in class. You know what I mean? Don't be rude toward nobody. Just study the Word for yourself and figure it out. I mean, unless they're like super way off. You know what I'm saying? Then, then you might want to talk to them after class. But the point of Sunday school class is not to embarrass somebody. You know, it's to grow. So, but you want to be in that class. You want to hear. You know, like I was talking about with that, uh, with that podcast this week. The way, he, the way he explained that, I was like, wow, that just, that's, that's really cool. Where Jesus Christ was the sinless Savior, Samson was the sinful Savior of Israel. I mean, I mean, anyway, I'm not going to preach that sermon to you, but man, it was good. I was like, man, that's, that's interesting. So anyway, uh, we need to have these things. If you want to mature in your salvation, work out your salvation if you're trembling. Have a consistent life of prayer. Have a consistent life of Bible intake. Have a consistent life of corporate worship. Who is Jesus? Jesus is greater. That's who he is. He is God the Son. Do you know him? Do you know him? You may know who he is. You may know about him, but do you know Jesus?